Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's Podcast. This is episode 38 and for the next three episodes we're going to be talking about obstetric emergencies with Marcus McMillan who's a consultant obstetrician in Glasgow. So how many of us feel a bit nervous when we hear there's someone labouring in triage? So hopefully we can take away a little bit of your concern. So let's just jump right in. Uh, my name is Marcus McMillan. I'm a consultant obstetrician at Princess Royal Maternity. I'm currently the lead clinician there, and my main interest is in uh, invasive placenta in obstetrics, and I'm the lead obstetrician for that service in our hospital. Fantastic. So thank you very much for joining us. So we're going to take you maybe a little bit out of your specialist interest and maybe into more general, kind of general obstetrics and obstetric emergencies in particular. So we're going to be a little bit artificial. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring you on shift with me. I don't know, maybe money's tight. You've decided to do a locum in A&E. Uh, yeah, kids off to school now, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're on shift with us and we're going to go around and we're going to see a series of patients, obstetric patients, uh, and we're just going to get a sense of what you would do in our setting with our resources, thinking about how we should think about it. So not thinking how you think about it as an obstetric consultant, but how you would refer patients, what you would do in those moments, in those settings. And that'll help us get a sense of maybe what we what we can change about our practice or maybe we're doing things right. But it'd be nice to get your kind of uh, your take on that. So let's start with a, a relatively easy one, <laughs> but it's still one that still seems to cause us a little bit of an anxiety, and that's just a delivery, a normal delivery. Mm-hmm. So even in, in our department, I mean, we don't see it very often. I guess that's when the anxiety comes. But, you know, when a, a, a pregnant woman comes into triage and they're in labor, we all get a bit nervous. Can you take us through? So say say you're in a remote community, there isn't obstetrics immediately available or a midwife immediately available. You have to handle this in our department. Talk us through what you would do, what, what you would think, what you would get, and how you would approach that patient. The first thing you're going to want to do with any patient like that is just find out a bit about their history. Now, granted, that's not always necessarily easy if someone is in advanced labour and about to deliver. The good news is that for the majority of people in that scenario, it'll take care of itself. People who've been delivering babies for a very long time, and most of the time you're not going to have a problem. It's just keeping calm and not interfering too much. Simple things that you can do are avoid people lying completely flat, try and get them as comfortable as you can. Thinking about analgesia, you probably wouldn't, would you have Entinox available? We do, yeah. Yeah, so we use Entinox certainly a lot in our department. Obviously, things like morphine and diamorphine are available, but without fetal monitoring, that's maybe less of a good idea. Uh, Most of the time, these things will sort themselves out and people will push their babies out without you having to do very much. You mentioned positioning. What would be the best position? So we will have a lot of people will lie on their back with their legs in a lithotomy position. That's a good one for delivery. On all fours, hands and knees or leaning over the bed. You can deliver standing up, sort of squatting down. It's really however the woman feels most comfortable. Yeah, I was going to say, when would you choose which position? Is it... it trying a few different until she feels more comfortable or, or we're very much guided by mums in that respect and a lot of our patients are in a quite different scenario because they will have regional anesthesia with an epidural they will be on a fetal monitor and that is a bit restrictive but if we've got we have a sort of group of patients that we call green pathway who basically require no intervention and are fine and they will do whatever they want wherever they feel most comfortable so you've got mum in that position she's got some entinox i guess you're there for a bit of 
comfort, reassurance, mm-hmm. talk to the mum, that type of thing. But what, what do you need? I think some towels think and, and, and physically towels, just... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think I think the idea of getting towels was set up just to occupy dads, basically. Go, <laughs> go and get some towels and get out of the way. Uh, what you're going to need, you're going to need IV access, you're going to need blood, you want to group and save, you're going to want a full blood count because the main worry you have with anyone delivering by any method is bleeding. That's your number one morbidity and mortality for anybody. So having being ready for that is more important anything you're going to do with the delivery things like episiotomies i wouldn't worry too much about the baby will come out you might get a nasty tear but don't worry we're good at fixing nasty tears and i think if you don't if you're not experienced at doing that i wouldn't be in a rush to go trying to do that to somebody and then take us through this is taking us down to the very basic level but this is what we actually need because we don't see this that often what what to do in the moments like when do i physically get involved do or, or do I literally I mean we'll see the head starting to crown so, what, what, what do we do you're kind of supporting the mum she will get an urge to push as the head comes down it goes into the pelvis and your sort of job is to work out when she's contracting and encourage her to push and try and time her effort along with the contractions a lot of people will get very inhibited during labour because it is, it is sore and there's no two ways about that it's very sore you don't really have to do very much at all we talk about things like guarding the perineum and protecting the head. But again, someone who isn't experienced in doing that, isn't a midwife, isn't a doctor, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I would just let the delivery happen, encouraging her to push with the contractions, delivering the head, delivering the baby, and then um, worrying about the consequences after that. In terms of putting hands on, when, once the head is delivered, you then want to maybe guide the baby gently downwards to get the shoulder underneath the pubic symphysis and then upwards once that first shoulder is delivered to try and avoid any further trauma to the perineum. So sorry, to just come back to the positioning thing, I presume if mum is in a different position compared to in the lithotomy position uh, versus on all fours just remind me in terms of of the gentle traction which i know isn't essential but to just talk us through what, so what will happen what, once the head comes out it'll deliver and it'll deliver by extension so you'll see the back of the head come up and the baby will come out you know facing basically towards mum's uh, bottom she the baby's head will then rotate it's called restitution to line up with the shoulders and it'll either look to the left or the right and your goal then with the next contraction next push is to get the anterior shoulder relative to mum's front delivered past the symphysis so if she's lying on her back you're pulling gentle traction down and then up if she's on all fours you're doing gentle traction up and then down the key feature is getting the baby's shoulder past the mum's symphysis and if you're in this moment and you're a little bit stressed and you're thinking, oh my God, was it up, was it down? What, what, which one was it again? Can you literally just let it if be you let and let m- it come? Yeah, you let mum give a big push, baby will come out. And then what, what, what's the next basic steps? So once you've delivered baby, we will usually, if mum's on her back, we'll put baby onto her tummy. If mum is on her side, we'll put baby next to her. And if she's on all fours, we'll kind of catch them and sling them underneath so she can see them. Once baby's out, we will usually leave them attached to the cord for about a minute for delayed cord clamping. That's shown to reduce the need for neonatal transfusion. Uh, we'll clamp the cord and cut it after about a minute and that, that's it. That's kind of job done for the baby. We've still obviously got to deliver the placenta and deal with any trauma that mum's had in the process of delivering. So tell us about that stage of placental delivery. How, how does that generally uh, so go? Generally, I would do nothing. I always get slightly frustrated with trainees when I see them do a forceps delivery or a von and immediately they start tugging on the cord. 
I would say leave it alone. You're allowed up to half an hour after delivery with active management where we would give syntocinin or ergometrin to reduce the risk of postpartum hemorrhage and up to an hour if you're doing nothing before you expect the placenta to separate. So once you get past those time frames, 30 minutes if you're giving syntocinin, an hour if you're doing nothing, your risk of postpartum hemorrhage starts to increase and at that point we would think about trying to deliver the placenta ourselves. There's various signs you can look for. The cord will lengthen a bit on the placenta. You might have a little bit of bleeding and that's a sign that the placenta is separating. So at that point, I would put a hand on the abdomen to feel the uterus. And it's usually fairly easy to do that. Very gentle traction. And if you feel the uterus start to move down as you're pulling on the cord, I would say stop because the worry is the placenta is still attached and you might invert the uterus as you pull on it. You can just wait and the placenta will eventually separate. And I presume we didn't say it at the beginning, but obviously call for help as soon as, you know, if, if yeah. there is help available. I think, yeah, if someone turns up in your department imminently having a baby, the first thing to do is contact your nearest obstetrician or midwife and get a bit of advice because it is a daunting prospect and it's not without risk. And while we do it every day, we appreciate that other people absolutely do not. So it's not uncommon for us to get a lady in labour coming through A&E and we have an obstetric or a labour ward not not far away. But the question is, you know, should we stay and deliver an A&E or do we have time to get them uh, up to the labour ward? Is there an easy way of saying what the right thing to do is? We're, we're not very comfortable examining um, um, pregnant ladies. I wouldn't say I've done enough to, to feel comfortable knowing on, on physical examination, how imminently, unless I see the head, obviously. Um, so is there any characteristics in the mum? Is there any way of telling, do we have time to get this lady up to the labour ward or do we need to do it here? Unfortunately, there's not really a reliable way of doing that. If you've got somebody who's feeling the urge to push and they want to, they feel like they want to deliver their baby, that sensation can be caused by other things. And we see a lot of people coming up saying they want to push and we examine and they're not really in advanced labour. So the short version is no. If you've got obstetrics on site, I would say call us. We will send someone down, a midwife or an obstetrician. We can assess them and decide whether delivery is going to be imminent in A&E or if we could have got time to bring them up. If we are coming down to the department, we'll take a delivery pack with us so that we're ready to catch one. And certainly most of the A&E that I've been to, including your own one, will have a little tray for delivery stuff kicking about somewhere. Okay, so I hope that normal delivery is what most people experience in emergency, <laughs> but th there are times when there are complications, and, and I'm going to take you th through a few of those just to, to find out what you would do, if that's okay. So let's start with postpartum hemorrhage. So everything's been okay so far. Mum continues to bleed and starts to get heavy. What would you do in that moment? So postpartum hemorrhage is our commonest complication by a long way, commonest cause of maternal death worldwide, and in the UK it's our number one cause of morbidity. The causes of PPH are important because your treatment is going to depend on why it's happening. So we talk about our four T's. So that's tone, tissue, trauma and thrombin. So tone is the first one. That's uterus not contracting. Uh, very simple first step, just give it a good rub. So put your hand in the abdomen, feel for the fundus of the uterus, push down towards the pelvis and basically give it a good rub. It's nothing more technical than that. You can actually feel uteruses become firm under that. It should feel like a muscle flexing almost and it. As it does that, it's going to stop those big blood vessels that are supplying the placental bed. It's going to contract around them, squeeze them, and the bleeding will get better. If that's not working, or what we sometimes find is that does work, but when you stop doing it, uterus relaxes and you bleed again, we then think about pharmacological methods. So 
in management of the third stage is when the placenta delivers, we will quite often give a prophylactic dose of syntocinin, usually 10 units intramuscularly. If that isn't working or you haven't given it, that would be your first step. You can then give five units intravenously. If that isn't working, we'd step up to the next sort of level. That'd be ergometrin, be our next drug. It's a very good drug. It's 500 micrograms, either IV or IM. Quite often makes people feel a bit sick because it's a good smooth muscle stimulant. The problem with ergometrin is it can put your blood pressure up. So if someone's hypertensive or you're, they've got a known to have preeclampsia, it's off the menu. We're not going to use that at all. The next step we would go to would be Hemabate or Carboprost. It's a synthetic prostaglandin analogue. It's 250 micrograms. It's always given IM. Don't give that IV. And it takes about 10 minutes to work. All these drugs have a lag time if you give them IM to work. So if someone's bleeding heavily, maybe give the IV ergometrin first rather than going IM. Hemobate needs to be kept in the fridge. That's just worth bearing in mind. That's what we always talk about at these uh, our teaching sessions is where is it kept in the fridge. The next one after that will be misoprostol. So that would be 800 to 1,000 micrograms given PR. Uh, very effective drug. You can give it orally, but quite often people will be sick. You can give it vaginally, but the blood washes out. So that's why we opt for the PR route. I've heard of uh, bimanual compression. What, can you take us through those steps if the, the fundus rub isn't enough in itself? So, yeah, if, you, if you're not getting on top of a, a relaxed uterus with your fundus rubber uh, medical measures, then bimanual compression is an effective way to stop it. So it's basically putting a hand inside the vagina and what you're then trying to do is reach over the fundus of the uterus and fold it over your hand. Now, I'm making a gesture here that obviously won't translate well on the podcast, but you're basically compressing the uterus between your hand and your fist. Now, it's really hard work you become exhausted very quickly because you're pressing really hard. Bimanual compression is really a means to buy you time to get to do something else, which for us would be going to theatre for next steps. If you're out in the community, you may have to have people taking it in turns, or if you're in a hospital without obstetrics, maybe call a friendly general surgeon and think about getting them to do a hysterectomy for you. And I take it that's quite an uncomfortable procedure. So. It's uncomfortable for everyone, but particularly uncomfortable for whoever is receiving bimanual compression, particularly if they have no analgesia. Even with an epidural, it's not fun. So I, I presume it's kind of standard resuscitation principles, uh, kind of major hemorrhage protocol. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah, it's, very, you know, it's the same as anyone who's bleeding heavily. I think it's worth bearing in mind that a pregnant uterus really is very vascular. The blood supply to a pregnant uterus at term is about 500 to 700 mils a minute. So these are people who can bleed in a really impressive way. It's worth thinking about what kind of access you're putting in when we talk about Venflon size and how much flow you can down them. So I'm a bit of an amateur. I always talk about Venflon colours rather than gauges. So uh, a green Venflon or a pink Venflon is not going to cut it in these situations. In fact, even down a grey Venflon, you can only usually get about 180 to 220 mils per minute, depending on your brand. And down an orange one, it's about 300, 340. So in fact, you actually need two oranges to match the output from a pregnant uterus in terms of blood loss. So it's whenever someone says, we need IV access, think grey or orange straight away, think something big. Now you mentioned some other teas. Let's go back to those. So the other T's, we've got tone. The next one would be trauma. That'd be the next commonest cause. And that's exactly as it sounds. If someone gets a big tear in their perineum during delivery, that's at risk of bleeding. Anything we can do? Probably not a huge amount. Obviously, giving eutrotonics isn't going to help that, although it will prevent blood loss from anything else. So we would quite say if someone's bleeding heavily, you're not going to do any harm by giving them a bolus of syntocinin. Beyond that, it's just going to be compression and packing it, basically. Because unless you know what you're doing, trying to stitch it up probably won't help, ultimately. 
And in terms of packing, I take it it's just crude, just lots of gauzes. Yeah, oh. just get some. We would just say get some big swabs, pack them in there, and pack them in tightly. Yes, it will be uncomfortable, but if someone, if you get a big vessel as you're doing that, pisiotomies can bleed in a very impressive way. Big tears can bleed in a very impressive way. So it is. It's just packing it and bring the legs down because you bring the legs down with the packs in. That compression effect will help to stop the bleeding. Okay, so we have a couple more T's. Well, what else do we need to know? So the tissue is the next thing on the list, and that would basically be a bit of retained placenta inside the uterus. The uterus won't contract properly until that's out, so your management options are going to be taking that out, and we would do that in theatre usually, or if you can't, that's not an option, basically the same as your tone, giving things to make the uterus contract to try and reduce the bleeding until you can get definitive management. And finally, you mentioned thrombin. Yeah, so we put thrombin in there at the end as a as in the PPH. Now, the number of people who have a serious clotting disorder that we don't know about and aren't ready for is pretty small by and large. A lot of clotting disorders will actually normalise in pregnancy because you are procoagulant. Thrombin is more in there as someone who has bled a lot will develop a clotting problem. So it's more in that kind of capacity, being aware that stopping the, we can just contract may only be half the battle until you give the clotting factors and the platelets to bring everything back to normal. And we didn't talk about it specifically, but it's going to be the same kind of major hemorrhage principles, isn't it? I presume yeah. we give tranexamic acid. Yeah. We check blood, blood products, and we and we go through it. And we, we, we don't need to talk about that in detail because that's stuff that we should probably know already. But yeah. anything you want to say about that? Yeah, it's very much the same principles. It's your FFP, it's your cryo, it's your platelets, it's all that stuff. Just bearing in mind that as a, as a pregnant person, you will need a bit more fibrinogen. So just be aware that the reference ranges your lab might have for non-pregnant people, we would sort of aim for a fibrinogen around about four rather than one over one or two. If someone's got a pregnant and bleeding with a fibrinogen of one or two, you need to give them some some more. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, do you mind just, we'll, we'll just quickly summarise that again. Do you mind? Is that okay? Yeah. So I think the key features are get your big access in and be ready with blood available and knowing what your starting blood count is and do that straight away. Uh, if you've got a PPH, then you're going to rub that fundus getting contracted by manuals. An option of that isn't working and your pharmacological measures, your syntocin and your ergometrin and your prostaglandin. And remembering, of course, that we don't give ergometrin to people who have high blood pressure. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on to something else. Shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia. So how do you recognise it? Is it basically the head's delivered and the next contraction, it doesn't come? Like how many contractions do you give before you think, oh, this isn't coming further? Is that when we start to think of dystocia? So there's several features to look for in shoulder dystocia. So yeah, you're right. Basically the head comes out and nothing else happens. We mentioned earlier that the head will restitute when it comes out. It will look either to the left or the right, depending on the orientation of the baby. And that doesn't happen with the shoulder dystocia. The head stays sort of tight onto the perineum. We call it turtlenecking, which I think is quite descriptive. You can imagine the turtle sticking his head out and then retracting back into its shell. So you have a head that's tight to the perineum. It doesn't turn to one side or the other mum's given a contraction and it's pushing you might be doing a bit of gentle traction and the baby is not moving that would make you think straight away you've got a shoulder dystocia there's other risk factors to look for if you know you're having a big baby if mum's diabetic if she's had a previous shoulder dystocia if she's had a particularly long labor but we wouldn't expect someone in any department to be looking for those things key features would be lack of restitution turtlenecking so what do we do? What's the simple? What, what can we physically do in A&E? So it's an obstetric emergency and it's a, it's a quite serious one. It's got significant implications for babies. So we will move fairly quickly to do that. 
the good news about shoulder dystocia is that 90% of them will deliver with fairly simple interventions. So the first step is recognizing it. You know something's right. You've maybe tried it, but gentle traction, baby's not coming out. The first thing we would do after that is something called McRoberts maneuver. And that's fairly straightforward. You're going to get the bed down flat. We're going to bring the patient right to the very end of the bed so that their bottom is basically right at the very edge of the bed. You're going to get their knees bent up so their knees are up right around their ears, but really, really undignified. And you need someone standing on each leg to really flex those hips right up and push the feet up so they're curled up almost into a little ball. That will basically open up the pelvis a bit more, gives a bit of room. What we should see is baby's shoulders sink under the symphysis and they'll become much easier to deliver. And that will work in 90% of cases. So that's our first line manoeuvre. If it goes beyond that, that's when as obstetricians we start feeling a bit unwell because that would be a bad shoulder dystocia if you're going to have to do something more exciting. Okay, so um, let, let's just say that the McRoberts hasn't worked. We'll not go into it in too much detail because I think this stuff needs to be, you know, you need to probably see it or be shown how to do it. It's hard to discuss it in a podcast, but what what is the next step? Can you just... So our next step would be to start thinking about um, various manu- other manoeuvres to help deliver baby. So you can start doing uh, a manoeuvre where you press on the shoulders. Now you push sort of in from 45 degrees to try and compress the biochromial diameter. The problem being you have to know which side the back is on because if you push from the front of baby, you'll open the shoulders up and make the situation worse. And again, that's something you have to do by examining and knowing what you're feeling. The other thing you can think about doing is trying to rotate baby, pushing on them, putting your fingers in the vagina and trying to rotate baby around one with the other. And again, you have to kind of know what you're doing. It's difficult to explain in a podcast. It's probably something you have to either see or be shown. Yeah, and we'll put some links to some videos or something that, that'll show that. That's great. Anything else you want to say about shoulder dystocia? Yeah, so if you've had a shoulder dystocia, you're at a much higher risk of having a postpartum hemorrhage afterwards. So it's just being aware after the shoulder dystocia, you cannot relax and congratulate yourself. You have to be ready for the potential PPH. Probably give some kind of prophylactics and yes, in, in that case. that wouldn't be an unreasonable thing to do at all. Okay, we didn't really say, obviously, but it, it kind of goes without saying, we obviously call for help, and that would include obstetrics, but also paediatrics in cases like these. Um, is there anything we need to think or do differently with the baby when they come out, or is it just the same principles? It's just the same principles. as being aware that baby's likely to be more compromised. There is a chance they can have various types of palsy you can get following a shoulder association, herbs palsy or clumpkins palsy. From your point of view, you don't do anything different. You wrap them up, you give them a good dry, uh, you try and make sure they're all right and give them to mum if they are. Okay, so I'll chuck in a wee, a wee curveball if that's okay. So uh, anything we need to know or what, what can we do about a cord prolapse? So cord prolapse, if you've got a cord that's obvious enough that's outside the vagina and you can see it, there's a high chance that that baby is already unfortunately not going to survive. If you can see the cord and feel that it's pulsatile and baby is alive, then you're going to want to take measures if you can to get that person transferred to theatre as soon as you can because basically we're, we're going to do a section very, very quickly. If you have a baby that's alive, then doing digital lifting up of the presenting part, basically putting your hand in the vagina and lifting whatever is in there out of the pelvis to stop it compressing the cord. A cord prolapse is not what kills the baby, it's what comes down after it and compresses the cord against the pelvis and obstructs it, that's what kills the baby. So it's all about lifting that presenting part up. So either sticking your hand in the vagina, lifting it up, getting mum head down if she's lying on her back. What we talk about doing in some of our 
teaching packages is bum up chin down procedure so you get mum on hands and knees face down bum in the air basically trying to get that de- that uh, pelvis decompressed we actually talk about putting catheter and filling the bladder because the bladder fills up it will lift the baby up out of the pelvis as well so you're doing everything you can to stop that presenting part compressing the cord and sorry just for my ignorance <laughs> when you say lifting the the baby up or the presenting part up do you mean pushing it back into yes, the womb so is that it's basically pushing it up out of the pelvis so if mum if mum is lying on her back then you're pushing it sort of towards her head essentially trying to stop whatever is coming down compressing that cord so you want to get gravity on your side you want to be doing any measure you've got to take that head usually it could be a bottom out of the pelvis and away from the cord So many, many thanks to Marcus and you'll be hearing more of him over the next couple of episodes. I think my main take-home points today are number one for normal labour, stay calm and don't interfere too much. It will generally happen naturally in the majority of cases. But do get IV access and take blood for full blood count and group and save. Keep mum comfortable by giving her Intanox. Let her adopt the position of most comfort and then encourage her to push with each contraction. Number two for postpartum hemorrhage, you want to push in the fundus down towards the pelvis and give it a good rub. If that doesn't work, then there is escalating pharmacological therapy, starting with syntocinin, then ergometrin, carboprost, and finally misoprostol. If these don't work, then you need to go to theatre, and one temporising measure can be bimanual compression, but that is tiring and painful for the mother. Number three is shoulder dystocia, which is a true obstetric emergency, and this is when the head doesn't restitute or turn left or right, and it retracts back into the pelvis, which can be called turtlenecking, and then with the next contraction, it doesn't seem to budge. So thankfully, 90% of these will resolve with the McRoberts manoeuvre, so this is when you bring mum's bottom to the edge of the bed, and then bring her knees up as far as they will go and push gently downwards. And finally... Number four is cord prolapse. So if pulsatile and baby's still alive, then they need theatre. And there are some temporising measures. You want to push the presenting part back into the pelvis and also use gravity if you can. So you could tilt mum's head downwards or if she's on all fours, she places her head on the bed, keeping her bottom in the air. And another option is filling the bladder, which pushes the baby out of the pelvis. So many, many thanks uh, to Marcus. Many thanks to you for listening. Please don't forget at mungos-ed.com where there's lots of additional resources for your enjoyment. Please give us a nice review on iTunes if you haven't done so already. And until next time, take care.